It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. On the occasional and rare moment that I sound semi-coherent or semi-intelligent, it is usually because I have committed Twitter plagiarism by uh, just reading from Michael Tracy's Twitter feed. I know it's now called X, but I'm a dinosaur. I still call it Twitter. He is probably the main reason that I still have Twitter because I get such a kick out of his tweets. And even though there's uh, whatever many characters they allow you now, they're, they're packed with information, an occasional dose of sarcasm, and a great deal of intelligence. And he is just off the campaign trail where he was covering the Iowa caucuses, and we have given him a couple of days to defrost, but he is joining us once again. Very pleased to be joined by independent journalist Michael Tracy. Michael, do you still call it Twitter, or do you call it X? You know, say, enunciating X is just so awkward that right. I think everybody's just going to habitually stick to Twitter just in, just for the sake of clarity. Whenever you see Twitter or X referenced in print media, they still almost uniformly say the platform formerly known as Twitter. Right. And it's been like six months since the name was officially changed. So who knows? All right. So it seems like you're with me and still calling it Twitter for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I still don't really understand the logic behind changing the name because Twitter was so universally known as just one of the chief social media platforms that had entered into the cultural the nomenclature, whereas X is just clunky and even still difficult to kind of uh, naturally integrate into one's Indeed, indeed. Who cares? Uh, Indeed. All right, so you were in Iowa. Uh, You're back from Iowa, I take it now, right? Yeah, I just got back today, actually. Okay, so you were in Iowa for the the Hawkeye Hawkeye. Uh, How did the weather affect you? And maybe more important, how do you think the weather affected turnout? Okay, so here's the best way to illustrate how cold it was. It was so cold that even when I was driving around in my rental car, I had the heat on full blast. My the, my feet would inevitably get cold just because when set on the floor of the car, they were close enough to the exterior or close enough to the outside temperature that my feet would get cold. I had never experienced that before. It was, it's so cold that it actually is like it's like it was sharply painful. Now I generally am more able to withstand cold weather. And a lot of people who I often feel like get hysterical about it, but this was an exception. I mean, this was rough. This was, uh, it was so cold that one night I was in my hotel and throughout the night, alarms kept going off. So I was like wondering, is there a fire? Is there something going on? And it turned out that it was so cold that the entire building's pipe system froze and it was causing like flooding and everything. It was just, it was wild. And yes, it did. Ha- it happened to just coincide with the Iowa caucus. Oh my um, goodness! So, my goodness. I, I mean, so the how did it affect the caucus? Well, just anecdotally, I, I personally spoke to people who were inhibited from attending for weather-related reasons. Like actually, just before I left um, this afternoon, I stopped by the only uh, kosher deli in <laughs> Des Moines, <laughs> and I, I think I I learned that this place existed because the, uh, Ron DeSantis had actually gone there to campaign uh, a few weeks ago and i went in and got a sandwich it was very good but uh one of the guys working there like an orthodox jew 
who is otherwise inclined to support DeSantis, said that his road, like the road that his house is on, was still perilously covered with frozen snow. So remember, there was a blizzard a couple days before the caucus, and then it was such frigid temperatures that the snow hadn't gone anywhere, so he wasn't able to safely get out of his house, more or less. And, you know, the nature of a caucus is, that if you can't physically get there on at 7 p.m. on a Monday night, then you're screwed. Um, so I, I also just encountered lots of people who had to work or had other obligations that prevented them from attending. So it really is an extremely narrow sliver of the electorate. I think the final number was that it was only about 15% of registered Republicans in the entire state of Iowa, who attended, which was down pretty substantially from 2016. Sure, sure. Um, so it's hard to say who it exactly disadvantaged. My theory is that Trump probably would have won by a larger margin if turnout had been increased or if there hadn't been the complications posed by the weather, because Trump's demographic within the Republican Party tends to skew more downscale, meaning socioeconomically, right? So, Right, the more, who more would, working class folks. Right. So the people who are yeah, working class who would maybe not be able to attend because of their um, obligation to work or what have you, or maybe because of they had to take care of a family member or for some other reason, probably would tend to be less affluent and therefore uh, disproportionately Trump-supportive. Whereas uh, Haley and DeSantis, if you look at the, some of the data, um, they tended to be more concentrated among the affluent uh, mm-hmm. cohort of, mm-hmm. of the party. So my, my premonition is that Trump would have won by a larger margin if there had been a system in place in Iowa that is a bit more conducive to widespread mass participation, which the caucus is kind of an antithesis of. I mean, it was interesting to observe. I had actually never been to an Iowa caucus in person before, I usually had been to, uh, I would concentrate on the New Hampshire primary in past cycles. I'm going to go there over the weekend as well. Um, but the caucus, I mean, it is an interesting process. I mean, you have to, I went to a play, a uh, high school auditorium where people actually have to debate amongst themselves to some extent. And mm-hmm. there are uh, delegates selected by each individual precinct. And I saw a DeSantis supporter trying to convince Trump supporters that, Trump actually sold out the country to Dr. Fauci and uh, ushered in this era of you know big government authoritarianism. It didn't seem to work because Trump still won pr- pretty uh, clearly in my uh, at my caucus site. Um, but it's sort of you know it is demo- democracy in action in a way, but there's also some downsides in that it's a private party administered event rather than a state administered election. So the party can do whatever it wants, even if it um, hinders huge segments of the population from being able to attend, they can proceed with it. But it is sort of novel that uh, such an unrepresentative portion of the population has such an outsized role in determining who the next, you know, quote-unquote leader of the free world is. Right. Um, right. Remember, you know, only 15%, even of registered Republicans in Iowa, and these are some of the most plugged-in, motivated voters in the entire country because they're so accustomed to Iowa being at the center of political attention in the country. And there's a whole industry in Iowa around 
you know, kind of a specialization in caucus process. Um, so anyway, I'm Rambwick. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now, um, one of the things, and if people are just tuning in, we're uh, talking with Michael Tracy. He does a lot of work everywhere. Great freelance journalist, wonderful independent journalist, uh, very we're experienced. Uh, but I think he does some of his best work on Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter at mtracy, M-T-R-A-C-E-Y. Um, one of the things that people have attributed to potentially reducing turnout was not just the weather, but the fact that all of the big media organizations called the outcome of the race, not only before the people were done caucusing, but in some instances before people had even begun caucusing. Speak to that for a second. What was your experience like being at a caucus site while the election results or the caucus results were already called? Yeah, so I can personally attest to that being the case because I was at a caucus site again at a high school auditorium in a place called Grimes, Iowa, which is in Dallas County, sort of a suburb of Des Moines. And I was watching the campaign surrogates give their final addresses to the crowd that had assembled. Because in an in a caucus, each campaign delegates. Uh, certain representatives to go and appear before the people who were there and make a case for them to support their candidate. And uh, that process was still going on. When I got the first you know, push notification on my phone saying that Donald Trump had been declared the winner of the mm. caucus. So literally no one had voted in my entire, at the entire caucus site that I was at when that notification came through. And you know, I guess, you know, technically there was probably some statistical validity to the determination to make that declaration when it was made. But if you're going to get all high and mighty and pious about so-called election interference or, um, you know, the sanctity of the democratic process, which the media tends to do day in, day out to the point of utter tedium, and then they have no qualm about... Uh, forcibly interceding in the middle of a very consequential democratic exercise to the point that you're almost telling people in a way that their vote doesn't count. Or, I mean, most people aren't in, intimately familiar with the apportionment of delegates and that even if Trump is the, you know, declared the winner overall, maybe their vote still counts because if you're supporting another candidate, then they could still get a certain number of delegates if you continue if, if you you know uh, carry on and cast your vote for them. I mean, most people don't really get the the, the intricacies of that. Um, so it could have had an impact because, you know, as I'm sure people are aware, lots of people get push notifications on their phone nowadays, um, and everybody in there has a smartphone, even the even the retirement age folks who tended to be who uh, populate. Uh, an Iowa caucus. Um, so, yeah, so as I was sitting there and before a single person had been in, able to vote yet, there was definitely the call that was made. 
or uh, Trump went in the caucus. I mean, I don't, who would have heard it if for the networks or the media organizations to simply wait a half hour or an hour? Right. I mean, that, that's what I don't understand. I mean, I, I, to open themselves up to all this criticism, not only from other candidates, but from voters and party leaders, uh, to me, is such a, an unforced error for very little value. I don't I don't get it at all. Uh, but y- you think because of the narrowness of who ends up voting in a caucus and the relatively paltry turnout, at least compared to a primary that a caucus generates, that if there had been a primary that Trump would have won by a wider margin? Well, yeah, I, th- I think that probably stands to reason, because even going back to the 2016 Republican primaries, Ted Cruz overperformed in caucuses, and relatively speaking, and Trump underperformed in caucuses, relatively speaking. Remember, Ted Cruz actually won the Iowa caucus against Trump in 2016, because he was able to organize, uh, especially the Christian conservative vote in Iowa, which, which is influential. And uh, Trump had more of a ramshackle operation at that point. And uh, there were other caucuses that were held in 2016, and Cruz tended to overperform in them. Cruz actually won Maine, uh, which was one of the oddest results of the 2016 cycle, because Maine actually tended to, uh, to be one of the more natural constituencies for Trump. And he ended up winning in the general election one of the congressional districts in Maine, which netted him an additional electoral vote because Maine is one of two states that allocates its uh, electoral votes by congressional district. Sure, sure. So, yeah, the, it, Trump probably uh, would have performed even better if there had been more mass participation because, again, it comes to the demographic breakdown associated economically within the Republican Party where you have, um, you know, DeSantis was probably the best analog to Cruz this time around in terms of who he was appealing to, although it doesn't quite map on uh, perfectly, but, you know, roughly speaking. And these are the, the DeSantis people are going to be the more uh, politically attuned. They're going to, they're, they're, they tend to be more affluent. They tend to be more uh, politically engaged just in terms of their ideological convictions. So, the caucus tends to ha- overrepresent those types of people, whereas the more casual uh, news consumer, the more casual follower of politics, who maybe feels positively toward Trump but is not, again, hyper engaged in the process, um, going to be lesser represented. So I, I would expect that to probably be borne out to some extent in um, in New Hampshire next week, and then through other uh, caucus, other primaries. A lot was made. The the caucus really is a relic of the past in a a lot of ways. Now, I don't think Iowa is ever going to get it. Iowa is going to get rid of it anytime soon because for them it comes with a lot of prestige, first in the nation, et cetera. And there's also this cottage industry of operatives who specialize in caucus procedure. Um, But uh, for for much of the country, it really does not make sense on a logistical level or even just in terms of basic fairness for who's able to participate. Yeah, talking with Michael Tracy. Hey, uh, we, a lot was made of the fact that Ron DeSantis had uh, visited all 99 counties. He clearly invested a, a lot of his time there and a lot of his money uh, to the extent that he had uh, resources. Why do you think he did finish second, but why do you think he fell so short of Trump? Uh, a year ago, people were predicting that he was going to win. Not, not even that long Ago. Six months ago, people were predicting that he might have a chance of winning in Iowa. Why did he fall so far, fall, fall so far short of where Trump did? Well, I think as late as uh, November, 
DeSantis himself was saying he was going to win Iowa. Right. Um, so he was personally predicting a victory there. Now, I mean, candidates will always try to be aspirational in their rhetoric in terms of how well they can perform in elections. But, man, to make that definitive of a pronouncement and then to lose by 30 points, that's a, that's a pretty severe blow. Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons. One of them is that DeSantis was clearly trying to make a play for this organized evangelical Christian vote um, that propelled Ted Cruz to victory in the Iowa caucus in 2016. Before that, Rick Santorum in 2012 and Mike Huckabee in 2008. Now, none of those three winners of the Iowa caucus in past cycles went on to win the Republican nomination, but they did get a boost out of winning the Iowa caucus because they were most in uh, you know, synchronicity with that uh, hi- hyper-engaged conservative Christian evangelical vote. And it was a bit more of an incongruous fit for DeSantis because he's not somebody who is ostentatiously religious, right? He's not, he doesn't have like a pastor type vibe like a Huckabee, or he's not somebody who is just going around invoking uh, biblical authority like a, like a cruise, even if it can be maybe cynical at times. Uh, DeSantis, you know, even if he is a, you know, professing a Catholic, he seems to be less uh, explicitly oriented toward, uh, you know, emphasizing his religiosity. Right. He doesn't come across as a holy roller like some of the previous Iowa caucus winners. Actually, um, I I had, I I spoke briefly with this guy, Bob Vanderplatz, who um, DeSantis uh, sought and received the endorsement of, who's seen as like, you know, the uh, head honcho for uh, conservative evangelicals in Iowa. I don't even know, frankly, what Bob Vanderplatt even does, other than he gets anointed every cycle as the leader of the conservative evangelicals in Iowa. And everybody's trying to go, you know, kiss his rear end to get his endorsement. So DeSantis gets his endorsement. And I asked Bob, Bob Vanderplatt, you know, DeSantis doesn't seem quite as aligned with conservative evangelicals as these other past candidates that you have endorsed, because he, he, Vanderplatz endorsed in the past, Cruz, Santorum, Huckabee, and that was his calling card because he was seen as the kingmaker for the Iowa caucus. Now I, I guess he doesn't have that same title anymore. <laughs> um, and and, and Vanderplatz said, uh, "Well, it's true. DeSantis doesn't really wear it on his sleeve. Everybody, everybody just kind of intuitively knows where he's coming from, or something to that effect. Just basically deflecting my question because." I, I just don't think it was ever able to be reconciled that DeSantis is not does not have the same kind of natural connection to that demographic as the past past winners did. And also even more complicating things for DeSantis is that Trump between 2016 and 2024 became a standard bearer, as bizarre as it is, for these conservative evangelicals in Iowa, because right. not only did he. You know, appoint the, the three Supreme Court justices that were integral in overturning Roe versus Wade. Trump also became a, something of an avatar for Christian America. And I'm overgeneralizing here, but you know, Trump himself and Trump supporters will say this kind of thing very freely, where they they they, they feel like he really, in a way, is a sort of prophetic figure um, who is a vehicle, even if he's not a a naturally endowed you know, fervent Christian believer himself, necessarily, he's still their chosen vehicle for mm-hmm. an act for preserving what they see as their, 
you know, their whole their right. Uh, Nobody's confusing yeah. him for living the lifestyle of Billy Graham, but he probably appoints the same uh, judges that Billy Graham would have appointed if he ever became president. I guess is uh, how a lot of folks uh, look at him. That make uh, that makes sense. And I have uh, friends and family members that uh, that certainly view him that way. That fall into that evangelical category. Michael, one or two quick questions uh, about the presidential race, and then I want to uh, try and ask you about the Middle East. We've been talking with Michael Tracy. If you're just tuning in, I know you said you're going to New. Hampshire. Uh, give me a prediction on where New Hampshire goes. A lot of folks are saying that that's uh, Haley's last stand. Some folks are saying it's DeSantis's last stand. Give me a prediction on New Hampshire. And what about what so many in the punditocracy and so many in Trump circles are saying that this race is already over at this point? Well, I, I don't want to be um, <laughs> overly uh, hubristic and declare anything over, but I mean, my my impression for months has been that the race was effectively over. I mean, Trump has had such an insurmountable lead for so long that it was almost statistically implausible that there could be any real change. I mean, I, I think the the critical point in the prime this primary process, and remember this primary process is historically anomalous because Trump is running as a quasi incumbent and to go into a primary with his with the political cachet that he accumulated right. from being president and from having this very robust connection with conservative uh, core Republican voters put him in such an advantage that to dislodge him really would have required like a you know a perfect storm or it would have required like a perfect it would have been, you know DeSantis would have to done like have to do the equivalent of like pitching a perfect game or something it wasn't impossible but everything had to fall into place and that just didn't happen for for DeSantis and if you look at DeSantis's polling status relative to Trump it's been on a, it was on a decline starting in uh March or April of last year and DeSantis wasn't able to capitalize on some of the early momentum that he had his gubernatorial re-election in Florida. And ever since then, it, it seemed like it was a bit of a foregone conclusion. Now, you know, I don't like ever being overly confident in my prognostications about American politics, because who the heck knows what's going right. to happen sure. at the time. But it really did seem like the historical trajectory made it such that Trump was almost too formidable for anybody to realistically um, counter. Um, now, there's also some variables in there. I mean, everybody knows about the Trump court cases, and maybe he gets convicted. Maybe there's some, some you know, maybe somebody gets struck by lightning. Who knows? Uh, it's not, it ain't over till it's over. But uh, if Trump wins by a historically large margin in Iowa, which he's already done, and if unless there's a huge shakeup, which I think is probably unlikely in in uh, New Hampshire, relative to the polls, he's probably going to win by a similar margin or with a similar share of the vote in New Hampshire. Um, and then what reason does anyone have to think it would be any different in South Carolina? Right. I mean, at a certain point, like there's just no realistic opening for any of these, any of these candidates to, to succeed. And I think there's going to be kind of uh, the, 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 the rationale for a Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis to kind of hang around is that, you know, there could be like some exogenous factor, such as a, a court conviction or what have you, um, that maybe forces Trump to step aside, which, you know, again, it's hard 
to imagine. But they're going to the only logic for staying in is going to not be that they can best Trump electorally, but that Trump is going to be somehow thwarted from running by some other uh, for, for mm-hmm. some other reason. Hey, uh, Matt, uh, um, Michael, just so folks can sort of guard themselves against whatever biases they perceive in your analysis or your reporting, I know you don't generally uh, make endorsements or things like that, but you do, uh, you are pretty open about your opinions on various issues and your opinions as to various candidates. Have you said, or would you like to say, who you're planning to vote for for president? I'm not planning to vote for anybody. Probably this time around, I've got, I've gotten more uh, apathetic as the years have gone by. Maybe it's to my discredit, but um, maybe apathetic is not the right word exactly. But I've been let, become less and less inclined to be overtly supportive of any particular candidate, uh, at least presidential candidate. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll try to see if I can exert leverage over like a local council person so they can kind of ease up on some of the parking restrictions on my street. <laughs> other than that. You know, I'm not. I feel uh, again less and less of an inclination to really get emotionally or politically, ideologically invested in the presidential campaign. So, uh, I'm not planning to vote for Trump or DeSantis or Haley or Biden, for that matter. RFK Jr. I think is also, you know, ridiculously overrated by some. Although he seems to have fallen off the radar a bit. But that's another story. The point is, I don't. Know, I feel like I'm uh, kind of. A man without a car. I, I feel like I'm intrinsically neutral, which is not something that I'm just doing for the sake of some kind of uh, performative impartiality. It's just kind of where I've landed. Duly recently. noted. Just so folks know where you're coming from. Hey, uh, yeah. lastly, Michael, I, I've really enjoyed your commentary on the Middle East. Give me your take on where we are with respect to this United States attack on the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, there seems to be a great likelihood and some concern about escalation. Where are we and where do you see this going? Well, it's interesting. On the night that the first round of airstrikes was ordered by Biden uh, on the Houthi targets in Yemen, I was covering a Ron DeSantis event in uh, Ames, Iowa. And because, you know, to, to his credit, uh, DeSantis is actually much more open than Haley or even, frankly, Trump in taking kind of unscripted questions from um, uh, journalists and also just members of the public who show up to his events. So I was able to ask DeSantis about the uh, airstrikes that had just been launched within you know, a matter of uh, about an hour of his event getting underway. And uh, DeSantis said that he does not believe that it would have been necessary for Biden to seek congressional authorization before launching that attack on the Houthis in Yemen. And remember, um, DeSantis himself had served in the House of Representatives becoming governor of Florida. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> DeSantis is saying that, you know, his his uh, perspective on the powers of the presidency is such that the president can unilaterally take military action of this kind without receiving authorization from Congress. Um, and I think that's a pretty you know, widely shared belief among both Republicans and Democrats in Washington, D.C., that Biden apparently can just launch what appears to now be another protracted Middle Eastern war, because just tonight we've apparently uh, started the fourth round of these airstrike attacks. 
And there's no evidence that I can see that they're producing the so-called deterrent effect on the Houthis that was the stated rationale for the strikes uh, when the Biden administration first initiated them last week. Uh, has, there, has the Houthi capacity to uh, strike uh, commercial ships in the Red Sea integrated? Not that anybody could really say with any confidence, I don't think. Um, so this is basically a new front in the Israel-Gaza war that's been opened without any congressional authorization, without any real debate, uh, even though uh, Biden's administration issued this ultimatum-type message along with the U.K. about a week or so before the strikes were launched, indicating that it wasn't some like uh, you know acute emergency situation where like within you know a half hour the U.S. just had to strike these Houthi targets or else there was going to be some kind of catastrophe, right? This was clearly premeditated and there was a big buildup to it over the course of months. I mean the first the first uh, exchange of uh, missiles, but was but from the Houthis to these uh, ships that are transiting the Red Sea was in October, if I'm not mistaken, and so. Once again, because the the, you know, the behemoth of the American national security apparatus, which nobody has any uh, sufficient anywhere near sufficient political will to ever curtail or uh, limit the the scope of, things have just barreled forward into yet another uh, limitless conflict, or at least a conflict that's not yet defined in terms mm-hmm. of its scope mm-hmm. and limitations. And to me, this was always extremely foreseeable. As a result of um, the U.S. involvement in the Gaza war and it was with Israel, where there was no limitations ever articulated as to U.S. provision of, of munitions or other kinds of aid for the Israel war effort in Gaza. And it's obviously produced a huge reaction around the world, including in the Middle East, where the cause of the Palestinians is very emotionally resonant. And the Houthis say very clearly, clearly that their motive, at least as they pro- uh, profess it, is to uh, basically take vengeance on countries that they see as aiding and abetting the Israel um, subjugation of the Palestinians in Gaza. And so, you know, when you when uh, when the ball gets rolling on a protracted military conflict, and you even see this to a large degree in Ukraine. The, the, the second and third order consequences are almost invariably escalatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the U.S. never seems to learn that lesson, whatever theater it's uh, directing its foreign policy. And it's just, you know, the song remains sure. the same. Yeah, it, it does indeed. Michael Tracy, we'll have to uh, end it there. I hope New Hampshire is a bit warmer for you. Hopefully we'll chat with you uh, along the campaign trail. Thanks very much. All right, happy to do it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.